Welcome back, Utah skiers and riders, to Last Chair, the Ski Utah podcast. I'm your host, Tom Kelly. A big shout out to Utah's own Pixie and the Partygrass Boys for opening yet another episode. And we also welcome our sponsor, High West, Utah's first legal distillery since 1870. Passionate about crafting delicious and distinctive whiskeys and helping people appreciate whiskey all in the context of our home right here in the American West. When you're in town this winter, visit one of High West's locations in Park City and nearby Wanship. We also welcome new sponsor Hyatt Centric, a hidden gem located slopeside at Sunrise Lift in Canyons Village. One of the cultural elements that makes our sport great is our skiing legends. How many of you have stood at the bottom of the Collins Lift at Alta and looked up to the cornerstone run to your left, Alf's High Rustler? And if you haven't, I know you've dreamed of it. You haven't lived as a skier until you've done a high boy lap. It's been nearly 25 years now since the passing of Alta ski legend Alf Engen, yet from Cardiff to Catherine's to Devil's Castle to Baldy, his legend lives on yet today. In the 1920s, Alf Engen brought his two brothers from Norway to America. In the 1930s, he became a ski jumping superstar from Park City's Ecker Hill to Chicago's Soldier Field. That same decade, he scouted Alta for the U.S. Forest Service as a possible new ski area, skiing from Brighton over Catherine's Pass and staying at a small miner's cabin. Alf later became Alta's director of skiing, his name forever linked to the Little Cottonwood Canyon Resort. Today, we're honored to have Alf's son, Alan Engen, a Hall of Fame skier himself and Alf's successor at Alta. He'll walk us through life in the Angan household as a young boy in Salt Lake City, and he'll track the history of his father and of Alta itself as one of Utah's most noted ski historians. Alan documented much of this history in his two books, For the Love of Skiing and also First Tracks. Alan will also talk about the formation of the Alf Engen Ski Museum in Park City, which evolved basically out of a quest by Alan and his wife Barbara to find a home for all of his father's hundreds of ski trophies. Today, the Alf Engen Ski Museum is the most visited ski museum in the world. In this episode, you'll be transported back in time to the roots of the culture of skiing here in Utah. It's a fascinating journey. Now let's join my friend Alan Engen to talk about his father, Alf, and the origins of skiing in Little Cottonwood Canyon here on Last Chair. Alan Engen, thanks for joining us on Last Chair, the Ski Utah podcast. I hope you had a wonderful holiday. We had an absolutely wonderful holiday with our family, and for an old guy, every holiday at this age is a great holiday. <laughs> they, re they really are. They really are. I had, I had a good one, too. We get out and skied uh, quite a bit. And, you know, one of the great things, too, for, for those who are listening to the podcast in mid-January and thinking about booking a Utah vacation, it just hasn't stopped snowing for the last two or three weeks, has it? No, and it looks like we're going to have more coming. So that's good. And we need it. We need the water. So 
Yeah, it's it's really quite amazing. This last storm actually had quite a bit of water in it. Yeah. Uh, but that's, we had some great powder days, and uh, I have to say uh, skiing is really fantastic in Utah right now. Well, in my opinion, it's the best anyplace. So, of course, I'm a little bit biased on that subject. Yeah, and I think all of us are. And Alan, I appreciate you joining us. Uh, you are a noted historian, and I've always respected that because you're helping to carry on the story for the next generation. You had the opportunity to grow up in an amazing family. Your father was the legendary Alf Engen, and we're going to talk more about Alf later in the podcast. Alf, of course, the director of skiing for many, many years at, at Alta, an iconic figure there and also a great athlete. But I want to go back to your childhood, and you grew up on the east side of Salt Lake City. Your father was this noted Norwegian skier who had emigrated to America. And I would imagine that you got into the sport at an early age. Well, yes. I'll tell you a little story that comes from my mother, not me. But my mother was always fond of telling how I came into this world. I was born in the uh, Holy Cross Hospital here in Salt Lake in 1940. And when I came into this world, the doctor who delivered me, his name was Dr. Huerit, put tongue depressors on the bottom of my feet and then proudly handed me over to my father. That being the case, I've added a little extra to the, to the story by saying I come pretty close to being born on skis. I love that story. We've all heard that term, but now we've actually heard it in an actuality. What was life like uh, growing up with ALF? Well, for me, I have really had the opportunity growing up in a sports family. I not only had a champion father, but I had champion uncles as well. And so skiing and probably soccer would be probably the two major sports that I was most familiar with because that's what they were involved in. And my early skiing experience didn't start here in Salt Lake. It started in Sun Valley, Idaho. Dad, right after his competitive years of ski jumping here, he started working for the Forest Service, and the Forest Service in turn worked with Averill Harriman, and Averill wanted Dad to come up and help build a new jumping hill there, which was the Rude Mountain Jumping Hill. So in the early years, why I lived with my parents in the Sun Valley Lodge, Dad would take me on occasion out to Rude Mountain, and he would build me a little takeoff right at the bottom of Rude Mountain, and I would watch the big boys jump, and then I'd go up and do a little jumping at the bottom of the hill. So that's where I got my start. It was in ski jumping, not alpine skiing. The other thing that I should probably mention is I had the opportunity of meeting a lot of dignitaries in Sun Valley in those years. And one of the dignitaries was Gary Cooper, who had a room right next to my parents in the Sun Valley Lodge. And I, uh, Gary kind of took a liking to me as a little guy. And so he'd take me around all kinds of places, and I'd walk around there, and I thought I was sure a big shot. I, Gary Cooper looked like a god to me. He was tall and handsome, and I thought, boy, what a guy he is. But back to the question on my father. As I look at my dad, and I even wrote a little article on it, and I think I gave you a copy of it, that I wrote many, many years later. But to me, my dad represented the best of everything. He was a, not only an outstanding athlete, could do just about anything. I mean, he was good in any sport. He was strong. He was 
Physically, he was the epitome of excellence, in my opinion. But he was also a good man. He was also a very good man. And I, I give an example of that. When I just turned 16, I'd gotten my driver's license, and I'd gone up to Alta in my parents' car to jump in a ski meet up there at Landis, Landis Hill. And on the way down from the event, it happened to be in the early part of the season, and there was ice down there at the bottom of the canyon. And lo and behold, I lost control of the car, and I went off the road and ended up in the creek. I wasn't hurt, but the car was totally demolished. Well, they called up to my dad, and my mother was really upset about it, and dad came down, and he took a look at the car, and he took a look at me and knew that I was okay. And he went over and whispered to the officers who were there, just said, take the car home. Don't take it away. Just take it and drive it and put it right in our driveway. So for the next half a year, as I finished out my school year at Olympus High School, every morning I'd get up, and that's what I would see out in the driveway. Dad never said a word to me about wrecking his car, but he wanted to send a message as to exactly what I did and that I would remember it, and I did. That is really a great story. I want to go back to your Sun Valley days. About how old were you when you were up at Sun Valley? We started there probably in the, the mid-40s, so I would have been about five years old, something like that. And when we came back to Utah, it was after Dad completed his assignment as coach of the 1948 Olympic team. So I was about eight years old when we came back here to, to live in Salt Lake. You know, it's interesting going back into that history. There were very few ski areas back in that time period. There were a few here in Utah and, of course, Sun Valley. But the sport was really starting to grow after the end of World War II. And, you know, I imagine that you at that time were six, seven, eight years old. I mean, did you have a sense growing up in the Engen household that skiing was a pretty big deal and was becoming more popular? Well, I knew that skiing was growing. The reason I knew that is because I was going up to Alta just about every chance that I had to ski, and I could watch the traffic, and I could see more and more cars coming up to Alta all the time. So I knew the sport was on the map, but I didn't know just exactly how it was going to grow. And I think my father played a big role in helping to develop that growth through the Deseret News Ski School because it was a free ski school. It was a community outreach. And that brought in virtually thousands of people that got their first start of skiing through the Deseret News Ski School. And you ultimately became an instructor and helped with that growth. I mean, you started instructing when you were just a teen, right? Oh, yes. I, I started... <laughs> Dad put me instructing when I was still just a very, very young boy because he'd put me in the classes with the young kids. And then I'd, I'd go out and, and help the young kids learn the, the basics of skiing. But I taught in the Deseret New Ski School for a long time. Eventually, when Dad had retired, I took it over for a few years. And so the Deseret New Ski School is not running right now, but it is probably one of the longest running community outreach ski schools in America. It was over 50 years before it finally terminated. And did it operate at multiple ski areas? Yes, it did. When Dad had it, we had the, the ski school running at a different location every week. And would run probably as far north as Pocatello and as far south as southern part of Utah. But all of the ski areas in between that area, we were there every single week putting on uh, the ski school. So let's talk about your career now. You started instructing as a teen. And how did your career in skiing progress from that point? Well, yes, I taught 
but I taught as an amateur, not as a professional. I grew up in competition. Dad told me at a very early age, he said, Alan, you don't have to follow me in competition if you don't want to. But he says, I give you one piece of advice. He said, if you want to be an instructor, be an instructor. If you want to be a champion skier in athletic competition, do that. But don't try to do them both at the same time because the temperament isn't the same. In competition, you have to be fierce. You have to be focused. You have to have a drive. And you have to be just almost on the mean side. To be an instructor, you're just the opposite. You have to be kind and look at the benefit of what you are giving to the people that you are teaching. So he says, my advice to you is pick what you want to do and then go do it. So with that as kind of in mind, I said, well, for a while, I want to do the competition side. I want to go and I want to be in competition, which I did all through my junior year. Ended up going to the University of Utah on a scholarship with a good friend of mine, Jim Gaddis, who's in the Hall of Fame here as well. And we kind of co-captained the University of Utah ski team for a number of years. Following that, uh, I was able to uh, join the uh, U.S. SISM ski team and skied competitively in Europe for a couple of years. So that kind of is the way I took. When I came back from skiing competitively, I went back into teaching. I took the certifications. Actually, I went through certification twice for full certification, but then got more heavily involved. And in my later years, of course, I had the opportunity of being with my father while he was still at Alta. And that was a real treat for me because I was able to be with him a lot at that time. When he retired, why then I kind of stepped into his shoes. So let's go back to the early days of competition. And this would have, I imagine, have been into the 50s now when you're in high school. You went to Olympus High School on the east side of Salt Lake City. Jim Gaddis went to East uh, High. City, East High. There was really a competitive high school program back oh, then. Oh, there it was. It was called the Knutson Cup. If uh, anybody remembers, that that was the big state championship of high schools in skiing. And yes, there was a whole bunch of schools that uh, fielded teams. But boy, to win the Knutson Cup, that you got bragging rights for a whole year after that. And the competition was good. You know, as, as I think back, I remember other skiers like Marvin Melville, who went to East and he won the Knutson Cup. Jim Gaddis won the Knutson Cup. I won the Knutson Cup. So, I mean, there was a whole number of people that played an influence in that time frame. And yes, to answer your question, junior racing and junior competing in all events. Now, I mean, I'm not talking just Alpine. I'm talking Nordic as well, was big in those years. And that was sort of the things that we competed in on a weekly basis. So high school racing really has gone by the wayside since then, but collegiate racing is still strong. It is. The Utes are continuing to be national a strong champions. national championship team. I think 14 national titles so far. Are you still a Ute fan at heart? Are you rooting for the ski team? <laughs> you better believe it, I am. That'll be forever. I'm very, very proud of what the current Utah ski team is doing because back in the days when Jim and I were skiing, why it was pretty primitive. Not that we were the first to compete on the collegiate side, but we were in the early years and the kind of conditions and equipment that we had to compete on doesn't even compare to what they have today. Yeah, it really is amazing to see that evolution. I, of course, was not here to witness that, but just having looked at the history and knowing some of you, knowing you and knowing Jim Gaddis and some of the others, there was a real passion for competitive skiing back then. 
No question about it. You know, I think that passion was one of the reasons why Jim and I were able to move ourselves up through the ranks. Because, you know, it was the Eastern skiers that really carried the dominance in the years that we were there. And Jim and I were pretty much by ourselves, but we both had a very, very strong, intense, competitive spirit. And I think the two of us working together, I think in some ways, we pushed each other up the ladder. And I think that's why we were both successful. Alan, you went on to a different career. You left skiing for a little bit. You moved to Kansas City. You worked for Hallmark. Tell us about that period, and then we'll bring it back to Alta when you returned. Well, there's a kind of an intermediate step in there that when Barbara and I graduated from the University of Utah, I had gone through ROTC, and so I took my oath of office the same day as graduation up at the university, and that would have been in 1963, and we left the next day on active duty. So that's what got me into the service, and that was how actually I was able to compete competitively in Europe during those years is because I was put on orders from the Department of Army to come represent the United States in international competition. But following my years in the service, I did go to Hallmark Cards. I was hired at Hallmark Cards, and I was a manager there for about 10 years in the graphic arts area. And I, of course, I had wonderful years there, but not too much skiing. I'd come back occasionally bring my family back, and I usually jump in the Alta Galandi or something like that, but not much in the way of skiing. But when we did move back, and this was in 1978, I got back into skiing in a big way. By the time I was here, I was probably in my early 40s, and uh, I worked for Hercules Incorporated as in computer technology. I started as a staff assistant and went out to become a manager there at Hercules as well. Did you feel a lure, though, to get back into skiing, that sport that you'd grown up with? <laughs> well, I have to tell a little story that my wife tells. She says, I, on one day, we were having some big thunderclouds or something that were growing over our house in Kansas City. And I looked up and I said, you know, Barbara, those look awful lot like mountains. And Barbara said, well, that's when I knew that we had to move back. So we did. I know exactly what you mean. I'm a flatlander myself. I grew up in Wisconsin. Ironically, we have a son who works for Hallmark Cards. He's been there for, I think, 25 years now. And, but I know that when I'm in Kansas City, there are no mountains. <laughs> Usually you got to look at the clouds. Pretty flat. But Barbara says when she, she heard me say that the, the clouds look that way, she says, we probably ought to find a way to get back to Utah again. And you did. And you actually went on to become the director of skiing at Alta. Yeah, I started uh, in 1992. I took over as the uh, ski school director. And I directed the ski school from 1992 to about 1998. Dad had passed away by that time. And then they said, well, Alan, it's time for you to move into your dad's director of skiing shoes. So they moved me in. And to my knowledge, there have only been two directors of skiing at Alta, and Dad was the first and I was the second. Did you take a lot of pride in following in his footsteps? Well, I don't think anybody really follows in my dad's footsteps. He sets some pretty deep tracks for me to follow, but I always had him as my idol, I would say. I really, truly felt of all of the athletes that I had the privilege of knowing in my lifetime— 
I thought probably my father was the one that I'd like to most closely emulate. Yeah, he was an amazing man, and we're going to talk more about him after the break. I want to talk a little bit about your passion for history. And during this time, you also started to write your first book, For the Love of Skiing, and that came out in 1998, and first tracks coming out in 2002. What instilled that sense of history and preserving the past in you, Alan? Well, (laughs) it's kind of roundabout. Probably it all started with me becoming involved in the early stages of the Utah Ski Archives program with Dr. Greg Thompson. Susie Raymer was an instructor with her husband, John, up in the ski school, Dad's Ski School, and she also worked at the University of Utah. So she had been a promoter of saying, you know, we better start gathering a little bit of history around here. So she talked to Greg Thompson, and one thing led to another. And one day, Susie and Greg came up and brought Dad and myself into Dad's office in the ski school. And Susie presented an idea of starting the archive program with Dad's scrapbooks, the scrapbooks that my grandmother, Martha Engen, had put together for my father. And there were seven or eight or nine of them. I mean, they were big scrapbooks. And Dad said, sure. And so I said, hey, that's kind of a cool idea. I'd like to be a part of that. So I kind of signed on as a early charter member of the Utah Ski Archives. And it was during the early development of the Ski Archives that I started saying, you know, maybe it'd be a good idea if we had a showplace for some of the stuff that we're talking about here. We talk a lot about it. We have a place to show it in the scrapbooks, but we had to have a place that people can come and actually see what was going on. So I started talking around a little bit and building the idea of that, and it took hold. When I started to develop the idea and get people involved in the idea of a ski museum, it became very obvious that we didn't have a whole lot written about ski history in this area. We had a little bit. We had Alexis Kellner that had a book out. We had Charles Keller who had written a book about the mining era at Alta, but we didn't have a whole lot. And I got to thinking with my father's encouragement because he wanted me to write a book and I'd never given much thought to it, but I said, okay, let's do this. So I spent a lot of time in putting together this first book, For the Love of Skiing, and the way I approached it is that I didn't want to just talk about dad and my uncles and all the things they did. I wanted to tie it into the big picture of how this all came about from the early development of skiing all the way through bringing it in here to Utah. So that was kind of the emphasis that I was drawing from. When I finished my book, I had a manuscript, and I didn't know what I was going to do with that manuscript. And it was kind of funny because about three or four days after my dad passed away, I got a telephone call right out of the blue, and it was from Gibbs Smith. Gibbs was on the phone, and he says, I understand that you have a manuscript that you put together on ski history. And I'd be very much interested in publishing that if it works out. So I took my manuscript up to Logan, where he had Gibbs Smith Publishing. And he took a look at my thick manuscript. And it was about two inches thick at the time. And he says, I'm not even going to read this right now. But he says, I'm giving you an assignment. You take it back to your house and you cut it in half. And then you come back and you talk to me again. Because he says it's far too much to put in one book. And he says there's probably a lot of extra stuff in there that we really don't need to talk about anyway. 
So I did that. And that probably was one of the hardest things that I ever had to do was to go back into my own writing and have to scrap a lot of stuff that I had written because I fell in love with all my writings and I thought it was all good. So, And you know, this is not the digital age yet. So this is all probably typewritten oh, yes. manuscript oh, yes. pages. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I had a really fine instructor that worked for me in the ski school at the time by the name of Dr. Sid Jensen. And Sid was a writer. And so I would have him come in in the morning and he'd sit down with me and he'd go through and he'd do a lot of the preliminary editing on the book. And so that's how we got around that aspect of it. Editing is a thankless task. And especially if you're a writer, to edit your own work and to essentially eliminate history. But you have to do it. You do. The interesting part of it is after we did the first book, Gib Smith says, you know, we ought to have some sort of a book to uh, highlight uh, the upcoming 2002 Olympics. And so I talked to Greg about it, Greg Thompson, and we agreed to work together on a follow-up book. And a lot of the material that I didn't cover in the book For the Love of Skiing went into that second book, First Tracks, A Century of Skiing. But that came out right at the time of the Olympics in 2002. It's amazing to look back at these. You know, that's the one thing about editing is you can take it out, but then you've got material for the next book, For right? the next book. That's exactly, and that's exactly the way that worked in this case. Well, they're amazing books, and they really document the, for sure, the history of skiing in Utah, but more broadly, document a period where skiing was going through this real metamorphosis, and uh, these athletes from Europe, particularly your father and other athletes from Norway and Austria and other places were coming over and really forging a completely new culture and sport. It, it is, I often look at this with sport. It's not just about the activity itself. It's about the lifestyle and culture that pervades it. And skiing just manifests that so well. I've mentioned it, I think, to you a couple of times and to others that I've kind of felt like my role in the ski world has been as a bridge, as a bridge from the old to the new, because I've been involved in the early stages with some of the early pioneers. I grew up with them. I knew them. And I've taken it all the way into, well, I'd say into the 2000 era and have known a lot of champions there. So I have covered a good number of years in the process. It's important to have that bridge. And, you know, you've talked about a number of others, Dr. Greg Thompson being foremost among them, Susie Raymer, who was instrumental in the early days of the Utah Ski Archives. And it's really important that we carry that forward. I mean, one of the reasons I wanted to do this podcast was to ensure that we also help to carry that Engen name forward. And we're going to talk more about the Engen family and ALF in particular when we come back from the break. Before we go to the break, though, just one other area I wanted to touch on. You were honored by induction into the U.S. Ski and Snowboard Hall of Fame around 2004. I remember being with you, and actually you had a pretty star-studded class up there in Ishpeming. But what did that mean to you to be recognized, much as your father had been years before, in the National Hall of Fame? You asked me a question on that some time ago, and I thought a little bit about it. And I thought, you know, the thing that sticks out to me is I've had the opportunity to be involved in a lot of very, very nice events. But it struck me that that particular evening and time that I spent in Ishpeming with the National Ski Hall of Fame has to rate right up there at the top. 
And it wasn't so much the fact that I was with, like you say, star-studded athletes, you know. Peekaboo Street was with me at the time that we went in, uh, Donna Weibrecht. I was with a lot of the big stars, but it was the people that surrounded the Ishpeming Marquette area that really got my attention. The way they did it in such a professional way. They even got the kids, the young kids, to actually create songs for the ones that were being honored there, that they sang that night for the induction ceremony. And then, of course, one of the very highlights for me was the fact that the uh, famous Tom Kelly was actually the one that put the ribbon around my neck. So I had it all together, and I, I fondly remember that time period. Well, thank you, Alan. I remember that night so well. And, you know, it is it is about that culture and about that lifestyle. And they do it so well up there. It's just the roots of the sport. And, you know, I hope as we move forward in skiing, I've skied for 50 years now. You've skied for more than that. But I hope that the next half century of skiing, we don't lose that feeling, that, that culture, that connection to other people who have this like interest in this amazing sport. You know, the one thing that I have noticed is I've watched the sport developed is in the early years, there weren't that many of us that were skiing. And so virtually when we go skiing, we knew virtually everybody on the hill. And today you go up and you're lucky if you find one or two that you can even recognize. So the sport has really grown, but I can't say that it has grown in the way that you can remember fondly because you don't know everybody. You're just one of, of many in this time period. But I will say this, that with the new equipment and the new techniques of skiing and the new lifts and everything that's gone in, that is what's brought forward the advancements in the sport. And I, I like you, I hope it continues for many years to come. You know, the knowing other people is a really big thing. And I it's one of the things that I feel when I'm at Alta. I feel like I'm a part of a family there. And the staff and my fellow skiers out there, we all feel like we're a part of the same thing. My, my best ski day last year was actually up at Beaver Mountain. I went up uh, by Logan. I went up on a Tuesday to do a podcast interview. And I went out to ski with Travis, the owner. And there's not a lot of people on the mountain at Beaver Mountain on a Tuesday. And he knew everyone. You know, it was just a friendly thing. I tell people, we skied for two and a half, three hours, but only did five runs because we were just talking and having fun. And isn't that what skiing's about? That's what it's all about, and you bet. I hope that tradition and I hope that feeling will continue in the future because it is very, very important that we maintain that. We're going to take a short break. We are with Alan Engen. We are talking about the great Engen family. When we come back, we're going to talk about the legendary Alf Engen. We're going to talk a little bit about Alta and explore a little bit more of the Alf Engen Ski Museum up in Park City. This is Tom Kelly with Last Chair of the Ski Utah Podcast. We'll be right back. I love history, especially the connection of skiing to our 19th century mining heritage here in Utah, especially in Little Cottonwood Canyon. While we have a break, let's head a few canyons over to Park City and drop into Canyons Resort Village. I skied over there last week on a 24-inch powder day is just a blast. I was also really struck by the opportunities for guests in Canyons Village, like the Hyatt-centric Park City. The Hyatt-centric is truly a hidden gem. It's a ski-in, ski-out resort located slopeside 
just an easy walk to the Sunrise Lift, and all of a sudden you have 7,000 acres of terrain at your disposal. At the Hyatt Centric, you can choose from one to four bedroom residential style residences with full-size living, dining, and kitchen areas. The residences also offer washer, dryer, and outside decks. At Hyatt Centric, you'll also find a wonderful full-service restaurant plus a bar, along with outdoor heated pool and jacuzzis. Hyatt-centric Park City, tucked away just a few steps from the Canyons Resort Plaza. Check it out for your next winter holiday at Hyatt.com. Now let's get back to Alan Engen to learn more about his father, Alf, and the ski area you've always dreamed of visiting, Alta in Little Cottonwood Canyon. We are back now with Alan Engen on Last Chair of the Ski Utah podcast. And Alan, thanks for exploring so much territory in the first half of our podcast. I want to move now and talk a little bit more about your father, Alf Engen, and also uh, his uh, brothers, uh, Corey and Sveri. And I want to start out with a quote that I, I think it's from you from one of your books, but it's something that that really, t- to me, was really quite poignant in looking at the Engen story. And it is, as I was growing up, I saw my father and uncles as living day representatives of winter legends of Norse mythology. I imagined all of the Angan brothers with their great physical strength, competitive drive, and love of winter as evolving into skiing icons. And in truth, they actually have. That's true. And I, and I felt that way all along is that, you know, I never really felt perhaps the, the impact that my dad really had on the sport until I started competing myself. And I can remember my first competitive event was on Landis Hill up in Alta. And I was just a young kid and I jumped on one of the lower takeoffs down there. And I remember my first jump, it was just a qualifying jump, but I did miserably. I took a terrible spill. And at the end of that, I remember going over and sitting down under a tree and just crying my heart out. And my dad came over and he said, Alan, what in the heck are you crying about? Get up there and do another jump. You can do better. And I said, yeah, Dad, but uh, the other kids don't have to win. I do. And so that was where it really hit me that the impact that my dad had on me was real. And I felt it. I felt it at that time. Well, Dad said, forget about it. Just go up and have a good time. Do the best you can. And that's good enough for me. So I went, and uh, luckily enough, I did win the tournament that day. I did win. But I didn't get off to a very good start to begin with. Well, that's what sport is about. It has its ups and downs. And I think your father, Alf Hangen, was an amazing coach. Just to orient us, where exactly is Landis Hill with reference points that we would know today? If you were to go up to the new Snowpine Lodge, which has been rebuilt and is a beautiful facility, beautiful lodge right now, and you would look just across the hillside from that, you would see the remains of the old Landis Hill. It's not there anymore. They've taken down the Judge's Hill, but the hill's shape is still there. 
But if you'll notice that they've got a transfer toad that runs along the flat of the hill, so you couldn't do anything with the runout anyway. But that's where the, the old Landis Hill was. And there was an actual ski jumping scaffold there. Oh, absolutely. As a matter of fact, when Ecker Hill kind of died away, Landis Hill became the new Ecker Hill. It wasn't near the size of Ecker Hill, but it was the one that was used the most for the jumping during the 50s and the 60s and into the 1970 era. And when they started to do Galande at Alta, where were those held? Were those in the similar location? No, not really. The first Galande was held at the bottom of what is now known as Alf's High Rustler Mountain. They had an old mine dump that was down there. And this would have been probably in the 1962 era. And that's where the first tournament was actually held. We built it so that it would go up and it would shoot you very, very, very high in the air. And if you weren't careful, you could out jump the hill and you land on the flat, which I did. So that was for the first one. And then they moved the Glondi tournament over to a mine dump coming out of one of the main runs at Alta. And so that's where it was held. It was over by the Collins Lift. Let's go back to Alf. And actually, before he ended up at Alta, before Alta even existed, how did the Engen brothers find their way from Norway to America? Well, you know, that's kind of an interesting story. My father is the oldest of the three brothers. And my grandfather died in Norway of the Spanish flu in 1918. And he was 31 years old at the time. But before he died, he was a great athlete too and had taken my father and my uncles and taught them the formation of how to ski in Norway. And so after my grandfather died, my father had to step into the role of being the head of the family over there with my, with my grandmother in order to keep the unit together. So he did that and he worked in Norway during the summer months and would ski in the winter. And uh, dad was already a powerful ski jumper when he came to America. He was well known. And he was also a soccer player. As a matter of fact, some people often have made the mention that he was a better soccer player than he was a skier. But he was a great soccer player. And he wanted to come to the United States to make some money so that he could go back to Norway and have some money to help the family. Well, he came to America in 1929, not knowing a word of English. And he was about 20 years old at that time. And he worked his way from New York up into the Chicago area. And he got some work with some Europeans there that were building, you know, they were doing rock work and they were doing much labor. But among them were a bunch of soccer players that knew a little bit about skiing, and they invited my dad to go and take a look at a jumping hill that was just outside of the Chicago area. So dad went with them, and he said, my golly, they are jumping there. And he saw an old man kind of at the bottom of the hill, and he was holding a pair of old jumping skis. And he, dad went over to him, and he said, Sir, would you mind if I could borrow your skis and go up and take a jump? Well, Dad was extending his street shoes. He didn't have any ski equipment. He had just regular shoes. He would just look like an absolute novice. The guy says, you, you're not fit to jump. And Dad says, well, let me try. So Dad tied on with some leather thongs. He put them around his feet, and he went. Uh, decided he was going to go up and try a jump. Well, as he was walking up the hill, there was no lifts at that place, so he had to crawl up. 
And as he was going up, all the jumpers that were there were laughing at him. They were saying, who is this young guy? He doesn't, he doesn't even look like an Alp, or a Nordic jumper. So dad went up and he tied the, the thongs around his feet and he took his first jump. And he went all the way to the bottom of the hill. Everybody was quiet. They just looked at him. Who is this guy that has come out of nowhere and is jumping like that? And my dad went over to the old man and he says, would you mind if I tried another jump with your jumping skis? And the old man looked at him and he says, young man, I don't know who you are or where you came from, but you can jump on my skis all afternoon. And dad did. That's a great story. I had not heard that. Do you know, is that the Norgi Ski Club that he was maybe I think at, it Norgi was. Jump? I think it was at that time. It was the Norgi Ski Club that, uh, that he was actually with. And actually, he made a mark that day. I mean, the news got out that here was this young guy that was just absolutely outstanding, uh, jumping. Nobody knew who he was. And so the early professional ski jumpers, contacted dad and asked him if he would like to join them on the newly established professional ski jumping circuit. So that's how dad got started. And it was a dream for dad because he didn't even think there was snow in the United States, let alone be able to ski. But here he had the opportunity to start with a professional group and actually make some money out of it and travel around the country. And that's how it got started. Well, that period of the 1930s was really a heyday of ski jumping in America. There was this professional tour. There were jumps all over the East and in the Midwest. And there was, in fact, actually a ski jumping competition held in Soldier Field, the big football stadium in Chicago. It was. Actually, my Uncle Swery and my dad uh, jumped at Soldier Field. That, that was the only time that uh, my uncle remembers that he actually beat my father in competition was at Soldier Field. Big upset. Yeah. <laughs> big, big upset. And we should actually talk about ski jumping right here in Utah at Ecker Hill, where he set a world record. And Ecker Hill, if uh, you know the Park City area, it's now what is the Pinebrook subdivision right. just off of I-80. There is a wonderful placard at the site of the old jump and some remnants up there as well. But Ecker Hill was really the epicenter of the ski jumping world for many years. It was, and probably to lead into Ecker Hill, we ought to make mention of the fact that it was another jumping hill, which was right where the Pineview Dam was located, called Becker Hill, named after the beer baron, Gus Becker, who had a jumping hill built right there. As a matter of fact, the hill was right where, you know, the headwaters are there at uh, Pineview Dam is where the, the hill was located. And that's what brought the professional ski jumpers to Utah. And it was right there at Becker Hill that dad started his jumping here in Utah. And he liked it so much, he actually stayed behind. And my uncle helped build the Ecker Hill to begin with. So that's how that got started. Just to clarify, Becker Hill at Pineview, that's Pineview Reservoir that's up by Ogden. Up right Ogden Canyon. That's exactly right. That's, yeah. the, you know, this snow basin isn't all that far away from that, but it wasn't there at that time. But things really progressed and ski jumping was a big deal. How did he make the transition to becoming one of the pioneers of the Alta ski area, which started in the 1930s? 
Well, Dad jumped professionally from the early 30s through the mid-1930s. About the mid-1930s, the professional ski jumping group was starting to disband. And a lot of that was because a lot of the jumpers were injured. They couldn't do it anymore. And so that period of the early dominance of professional ski jumping, and people would come up by the thousands to watch them jump. I mean, it was a big, big deal. But also along that time frame, why there were other dimensions that were starting to take place. People were wanting to get out into the mountains themselves and not just watch people ski. They wanted to participate themselves. And so they were wandering out all over the place. And the Forest Service came and talked to my dad and said, Alf, would you be willing to help lay out some areas where people could start to congregate so that we could bring them up and ski in a controlled environment? It was through the Forest Service. So dad was hired by the Forest Service in the mid-1930s to go up and start taking a look at potential areas. One of the first that he talked about was Alta, because Alta was a known commodity. It had been around a lot of years as a mining town. They knew it had plenty of good snow, but they wanted to see whether it would actually be good for a ski area. And dad went up over Catherine's Pass from Brighton into Alta and stayed with a couple of miners by the name of the Jacobson brothers. So, Alan, he skied from Brighton up over Catherine's and down into what we know today as Alta. That was the only way Dad could get into Alta at that time. He did it in the middle of the winter, so he had to hike in. Dad was a powerful skier. He had strong legs, so he could go through that deep snow all the way over Catherine's Pass. But he came over it, and he dropped into the Albion Basin, and at the foot of the Albion Basin, there was a cabin. And that cabin was one of the very few left miners at Alta by the name of the Jacobson brothers. And they lived there together. And so dad stopped in at the cabin and uh, said, I'm here to kind of look over this area up here to see whether it might be a site for potential skiers in the future. And the Jacobson brothers were very helpful. He said, sure. Take a look. If you want to stay here with us for a few days, do whatever you want. But Dad didn't stay too long. He looked the area over, and the biggest thing that he saw was, A, it was a great place for a ski area, but number two, the miners had denuded all of the, uh, the tree coverage that held back the avalanches. And Dad, when he went back to the Forest Service, he said, you know, Yes, let's go ahead and develop the area, but for gosh sakes, we got to do something about the tree planting. we got to put new trees in there so it'll hold back the avalanches. So Dad actually became one of the early CCC foremen that went back into Alta with a team of young men and actually did a lot of the early replanting of some of the old timber that still remains up at Alta today. That's an amazing story. I, I hadn't heard that. And was he also involved in laying out some of the early runs at Alta? Dad, because of his involvement with the Forest Service, he was a special consultant. When the nod was given that, we yes, we are going to go ahead and put in a ski area at Alta, they needed to do some planning. And Dad was involved in the early planning. If you take a look at the early maps, that are drawn out as to where the lifts would go and everything else, the name Alfingen will be right in the middle of all of that. From there, he actually became very involved. He became director of skiing, and that really became his life. 
Well, yeah, a lot of things happened in between. You know, for example, when Dad laid out the area at Alta, why that was before we actually moved back to Sun Valley. And so Dad went back to Sun Valley and spent a good portion of his years in the Sun Valley area. And then after coaching the 1948 Olympic team, why came back to Alta and then he went back into the actual operation of Alta up there at that time. At that time in the late 40s and in the 50s, as we talked about earlier in the podcast, skiing was really taking off. Alta was a premier destination, and this was the place to be. It was the place to come and ski in the West. Yes, I would say it was certainly one of the places. You know, we had other areas such as Brighton that had some skiing going on in the early days, but Alta came in kind of at the forefront because it was one of the early areas that actually build an uphill conveyance called a chairlift, okay? There was another area called Sun Valley, Idaho that had put in uh, chairlifts up there too, and they were a little bit ahead of Alta. But here in Utah, the old Collins chairlift was the first one to go in at Alta. So that drew a lot of attention. People didn't have to walk. They could actually ride up. And it started at, I think, something like 50 cents a ride or something like this. And you could go all the way up to a whole day of skiing at Alta for $1.50, I believe. And that was about 1938. Yeah. It's fun. We also had uh, Katerina Schmitz from Doppelmeyer USA, the lift company, on a recent edition of Last Chair. And we talked about the evolution of lifts and You know, today we have these high-speed four-packs, six-packs, eight-packs are coming. We have these fancy gondolas. But back then, a simple, what I'll call slow, double chairlift was the lift of the day. Oh, absolutely. When double chairlifts, that was a that was a big thing. Now what do we have? We have quads that are a lot bigger than that right now and go a lot faster. But yeah, when the double chairlift came, that was a big deal. The old Alta chairlift, though, was kind of a big thing. Even some of the early chairlifts that were put in at Alta didn't have a back to them. And so when you sat on the seat, you were just sitting on the seat, hanging on to the rail. And skiing was quite different then, too. There weren't the kind of groomed runs. There was not snowmaking. There were none of the really manicuring tools that we have today. It was raw snow. Absolutely. And even when I, as a young skier, skied at Alta, and that came quite a bit later, but virtually you could go up and you could ski a brand new pristine run, powder run, all day long and never cross your tracks a second time. I mean, it was just that big. But it had a downside to it. And that was if people fell in the tracks and you were skiing down and your tip hooked into those holes, why you could take a big, big spill at the same time. Yeah, it was a different era. I want to talk about a signature run that is iconic for so many people. It's the run that that looms over you when you come to Alta, and that is Alf's High Rustler. Do you know much of the origin of that run and how it became popular and, you know, what it meant to Alf? Well, yes. What is known as Alf's High Rustler, in the early days of development at Alta, which would have placed it right around the early 1940s, maybe even a little bit sooner than that, the actual run itself, the mountainside, was actually used. And skiers would come up and they'd hike. They'd hike up. They even put a little toe in there. But it eventually developed into a place where It was very prominent. People would see it firsthand when they would come in. And in the 1980s, why, as a tribute to my father, 
because it was such a, a prominent run, they renamed High Rustler Alf's High Rustler. It's such, such a signature run, and it's a challenging run. I mean, it's a real badge of honor to ski that run. You have the long traverse from the top of the lift. In the old days, you had to hike it. But it really is that special run that, that visitors to Alta, they want to make that their closing run of the day. Well, yeah. And if they did it at the closing run, that was pretty hard on their legs, too. But they had the long traverse over, and then it was not easy getting into the top of Alf's High Rustler. But I will also say one of the best things about Alf's High Rustler is they have a torchlight parade that they do at Christmas and New Year's, and that is really quite a deal. To actually have to make that traverse when you can't see very well anyway, all the way over there and drop in and then make the, the run all the way down, that was a challenging time. Yeah, this is not the manicured run that you often see towards big lake bumps. parades. Big, 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 big bumps. Yep. I want to uh, talk a little bit before we close out about the Alfangan Ski Museum. And it's a fascinating story, and you and your wife Barbara have told me this story, but it actually grew out of the fact that you needed something to do with all of Alf's trophies. That is true. You know, we as a family knew of all of my father's awards because he had them in his condominium down in Salt Lake. And we were saying, okay, what happens when uh, my father isn't around anymore? Certainly it's deserving to have some place where people could actually take a look and remember back of what dad had done in his lifetime. And so I guess I was one of the ones that kind of came up with a harebrained idea of, well, maybe we ought to have a museum, not knowing at all of what I was talking about, because none of the people that I knew had any kind of knowledge about what it would take to put together a museum, a ski museum. But I was fortunate enough to bring together a very, very fine cadre of people that loved skiing and loved history. And it was because of them and the efforts that was made from the uh, outgrowth of the ski archives in the late 80s and into the early 90s that we were able to put together a plan for how to go about and build a ski museum. So the Alfangan Ski Museum exists today. It is at the Utah Olympic Park. You had a great opportunity with the Olympics coming in 2002 to actually find a place, a building for this museum. It's been said a number of times, and I think it was uh, started by a comment that Mike Korologos said, that having the ski museum up there was a fortuitous situation that kind of came together at the right time. You had a figurehead like my father, which was very, very well known, that you could build around. And you also had the plan of having an Olympic Games coming, actually coming to Utah. And to put that together, yes, it made the, the ingredients for putting together something like this to happen up at the uh, Utah Olympic Park. I know that we looked around at a lot of different locations at the time as to where a ski museum could be placed, but it was probably Spence Eccles Sr. that really had a driving influence as to the actual location because he said, Alan, if you're going to put a museum in of this caliber, you can't just put it any place. You've got to put it in a place where people will come and visit, not just once, but multiple times. And he says, in my opinion, where you need to put it is up at Utah Olympic Park. And that's what happened. This is truly one of the finest ski museums in the world. And while it is a bit regional in nature because of where it is and the subject matter, 
the quality of the displays, the scope of what is available in this museum is really unrivaled around the world. I know that you take a lot of pride in looking back at what's been built here and how it serves tourists and skiers and visitors from all countries who come to visit Utah. Well, I think that's true. And we had some initial goals that we had set out initially. The first one was is we didn't want it to be static. We wanted to have a place that continued to change because if you have just a place and everybody's seen it once, what's going to bring them back a second time? So we wanted to continually to make it change all the time and give the visitors an opportunity and a wanting to come back and see what's new in the ski museum. The second thing that we had in mind, and this came from my father, because I when we were talking to dad a little bit about having a ski museum, he says, you got to make it interesting for the kids. He says, build it around the kids so the kids have an interest and they can see what is happening with the ski sport and they will want to become a part of it. So it's been those two primary driving forces that we've tried to adhere to. One of the fun things for kids there are the interactive displays where they can sit in a chairlift and get a sensation that they're actually going down the mountain or off a ski jump or actually stand on a pair of ski jumping skis and soar off a scaffold. The neat part to me is when I go up there on occasion right now and I see these groups of young kids coming up there to go with their classes to come up there is to see the smiles on their face as they go through the facility because they are learning, they are seeing, they're feeling what was really like to be skiing in those days. And I think a lot of them will become a very active part of the ski community in the future. It's a great ski museum. It's located at the Utah Olympic Park, right at Kimball Junction alongside of I-80 at the entrance to Park City. And they do have a great gift shop. And I believe that you can actually purchase your two books for the love of skiing and first tracks at the museum as well. Well, I think they're still they're still for sale up there. <laughs> they are. I know I just got some a short time ago. Alan, thank you so much for this great discussion of uh, your father and your family and what they've meant to the sport. We're going to close out this edition of Last Share with a little section called Fresh Tracks, some fun little short questions for you. And just one to kick it off. Do you have that favorite ski run from your career that just brings back great memories? I was thinking a little bit about that, and I was thinking, okay, where was it that uh, some of the early photos were taken of my father and myself skiing in powder? And I have to say that probably the premier place that we would go would go to Greeley Bowl. It had two special features to it. Number one, it was nice and steep, and it always had good snow. But it was a long run, so you didn't have to ride the lift back up to take another run. You could go with a photographer and make turns over there. And so I, as I think back of the times where I wanted to go a little bit by myself and take a run, I'd usually go over to Greeley and ski high Greeley and all the way down to the bottom. You know, it's funny because I think that's one of the more overlooked runs at Alta. People have other places they want to go, Alps High Wrestlers on the other side, but I love Greeley Bull. And you know, I love it in the summertime. It is a great wildflower hike. It is to get beautiful. Up there. It is absolutely beautiful. Greeley Bull, check it out on the trail map. By the way, speaking of trail maps, I didn't cover this earlier, but I have to hit it. You actually paint it one of the early trail maps, or really the first probably full trail map of the mountain. 
Yes, I was hired by the um, area manager at that time, Chick Morton. Chick was wanting to put together something that highlighted Alta's 50th anniversary, I believe it was. And so he knew that I was at the University of Utah studying art, and he asked if I'd be willing to do the first illustration, the first ski area illustration at Alta, which I did. It was used uh, for a number of years, and I think the original painting still hangs on the wall at the Sitzmark Club of the Alta Lodge. It's amazing, and we're going to actually uh, put this into the blog page, so if you're listening to the podcast, go to skiutah.com, and you'll be able to see this original trail map. We've talked about a number of stories about your father, but do you have a favorite Alfangan story, favorite story of your father you can share? Well, you know, I talked a little bit about how he got started jumping here in the United States, but I'm going to make a follow-on to that. After Dad coached the 1948 Olympic team, he and my mother were invited by the Norwegian government to go back to Norway and see the changes that had been made over the years, and that's what he did. And this was in 1948, and when they got there, they had all kinds of celebrations, and they said, off this ski jumping hill over here, and it was just outside of Mjendal, Norway. He said, you set the record before you left Norway many, many years ago. And that record had a big sign at the bottom of it, the hill record set by Alf Engen. And he said, nobody has ever broken that hill record. Would you like to take another jump on that particular hill? And so dad said, okay, I'll try it out. So dad went up and lo and behold, he jumped it, and he landed in the same spot, the same spot where he had broken the hill record many, many years ago. That is a great story. Where is that sign today? The actual sign, I think, is still with the hill. It's just a little hill outside of, the, uh, outside of Mjøndal, Norway, which where my dad, my dad was born. It was probably closer to Drammen is where it was actually located. No one's probably ever beaten the record. Not as far as I know. <laughs> we talked about your favorite ski run is there any really exotic place that you've skied before that you wanted to highlight? Well, I've had the opportunity of skiing in many places throughout Europe and, and America. And I would have to say that the, the one place that really stood out to me was Zermatt. The reason why I say that is, number one, is it absolutely is one of the most picturesque places that you can ever be with the Matterhorn right there. But the other was that it gave me one of the greatest challenges that I had. I was, I was able to compete in what they called the Gornergrat Derby. And there the, you actually start up on the glaciers, way the heck up there. You have to go up by train to get up there. And I remember the day that we had the competition there for the Gornergrat Derby, it was a really miserable day. You couldn't see anything. When we started the downhill run, we had to start in fog, and we didn't know basically where we were going. They set some tracks and flags that you kind of tried to get to the marker, and it was, luckily it was flat. It was really flat on, on, on the corner, but you didn't want to get off the course because then you're going to, to a crevasse. And then the lower part of the course was really steep. It was really steep. And by that time, your legs were just dead tired. You were really hanging on for dear life. But it was about seven miles. That course was about seven miles. And anybody has tried to ski seven miles on one run, that's wearing on your legs. I was able to compete in that, and I was able to finish. And I think I finished 10th, which was probably one of my better finishes in Europe at that time. So I, I do remember that place. 
Alan, just to close it off, maybe a little bit of a deep question, but as you think back at your life growing up with your father, Al Feng, and the experiences that you've had, the camaraderie, the gemutschlichkeit, all of those things that go with skiing, what does the sport mean to you? Well, you know, it means an awful lot. I would have to say one of the things that I'm most proud of is that I am part of a skiing dynasty. I followed in the tracks of my father and my two uncles, whom each of their own rights made major, major contributions to skiing. And when I went into the U.S. Ski Hall of Fame, it made our family, the Angan family, the only family so far in any sport that we know of that has four members in the National Ski Hall of Fame. That I'm proud of. Well, you should be. And uh, truly, the Ingen family are, as we talked about earlier, winter legends of Norse mythology. So, Alan Engen, thank you so much for joining us on Last Year. It's been an honor and a privilege to be with you, Tom. Thank you so much. A big heartfelt thanks to my friend Alan Engen. When it comes to skiing, Alan has this encyclopedic mind. And he's just passionate about the sport. I had the opportunity to meet his father, Alf Engen, many, many times. They are true legends here in Utah. And if you're visiting Utah this season, come on up and stop by the free Alf Engen Ski Museum at the Utah Olympic Park in Park City. It's right off of I-80. It's truly one of the finest ski museums in the world with fun activities for kids and a great look back at the sport here in the Intermountain West. The Ski Utah Last Chair podcast is brought to you by High West Distillery. Follow our whiskey adventure on all social media platforms at Drink High West. And remember, sip responsibly High West Whiskey, 46% alcohol by volume. High West Distillery in Park City, Utah. Thank you for joining us on Last Chair. We'll be back soon with more episodes. To close us out, let's welcome our friends Pixie and the Party Grass Boys. And remember to subscribe to Last Chair to have every episode delivered direct to you. I'm Tom Kelly for Last Chair, presented by High West. Have fun. It is truly a great day to ski. Oh, I love to ski. I'm living in Utah. I'm living in Utah.